tonight. Joy, pain, and hope. How biblical realism produces patience and strength. And the text is Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at 10 verses tonight. 8, 15 through 25 of Romans chapter 8. Let me read. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. By whom we cry... Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, small, small s, our spirit, that we are children of God. There's a progression now you're going to see. And if children, so if I were underlining, I'd underline children, then heirs, because that's, that's what happens when you're in a family, heirs. There are Blessings, benefits. And then he's going to define that more. Heirs of God and he sees something different here because he, he, he could just stop there. Heirs of God, period, but he doesn't. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now just pause there. Let that sink in for a minute. That Father God looks at you as his child and heir, listen to me, in the same way that he looks at Jesus Christ as his child and heir. And everybody in the room ought to go, ah! That's astounding. The, the beloved son whom he sent into the world. That, that God thinks of of. of Ron Dyer and Don Horbin and Brent Diaz. You're all wondering who I'm going to say next. I'll quit. And, 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 he, and, he, and he, as, much, as much in my interest as my son Jesus. Fellow heirs with Christ. And then this surprising part, provided we... Provided we suffer with him, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the suffering and the glorification go together. I hope you see that. For I consider, there's the verb, consider, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Is to be, meaning it's not yet. 19. For the creation, the whole creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, it wasn't the creation's idea, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So who subjected it to futility? Don't say Satan. That would be uh, that would be the wrong answer. Satan doesn't do anything to generate hope. 
Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's not just we, but all of creation is going to be transformed. A new creation. For we know, 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together. All of it. Groaning together. There's your answer for tsunamis and tornadoes that kill innocent children and earthquakes and mudslides and floods and disease and pestilence. It's all, it's all groaning. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth. That's an interesting phrase. Temporary, the pains of childbirth. Preparatory, for something else, fresh and new. It's, it's, it's that kind of suffering, not hopeless suffering, not indefinite. Something else is being birthed, but it's not here yet. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. Doesn't matter how godly you are. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Why does all this happen? You go through those seasons. Don't you go through those seasons where you get up in the morning and, you know, it's, it's not anything you can put your finger on. You just go, oh, man. <laughs> just weary. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. You don't have to hope for something if you already have it. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Patience. Why patience? Well, because it, it just seems like it should have happened a long time ago, right? It just takes a long time. Why so long? Why doesn't God do something? You hear it all the time, don't you? Why doesn't God do something about this? You Christians, your belief in a good God. Look at this mess. How long? Patience. It's quite a text. It's a big text. Uh, the Christian life, the theme is the life of the Spirit a mixture of, of joy and pain, groaning, and hope. And then what's, what's more is we're called to remember that our walk with Jesus is always going to be this, this mixture. If we're going to avoid one of two things, either hypocrisy, you know, that stupid grin, oh, everything's great, I'm just blessed, whoopity-doo, or despair, nothing ever works for me. Neither one of those is legitimate and necessary. The text says why this is the way it is, why it has to be the way it is. Point number one. I was going to say something else, but no, I'm not going to. There are two ways by which the Holy Spirit establishes his witness. That's the word used. Two ways he establishes his witness with our spirit. I get that in 13 through 16. Where he says, if you live according to the flesh, you, you will die. But if 
by the Spirit, you, you put to death the deeds of the body. He doesn't mean deeds like eating and drinking and breathing, but the deeds of the old nature, the deeds of the flesh, the things that are bound up in selfish desires, greed, idolatry, impurity, revenge, pride, the actions that come swelling out of those things. That's the deeds he's talking about. Put to death the deeds of the body you will live. And he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God. There it is. That's the subject. How the Spirit bears witness with ours. I said there were two ways. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then he sums up, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The verse that pops out that most people can quote, even if they don't know where they found it, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, 8.16. Just about everybody knows at least a reasonable facsimile to that verse. The idea being, of course, we can't create our own Christianity. You can't just, you can't just profess your own Christianity. Anyone can know doctrines, but no one can create the inward change of heart that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. And so in those 13, 14, 15, 16, Paul says there are two ways. Predominantly, the Holy Spirit works along two lines in my life and in your life. You want to know if the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Look for these two things. First, he brings out, this is my terminology, it's not in the text. He brings out an official renouncing of sin in our lives. 13 and 14, if you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, so now he's talking about something the Holy Spirit's going to do in Don Horbin's heart. If he's working in my heart, look for this. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, he's talking about a universal experience in Christians. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. And so, so Paul says, here's the first way to recognize the witness, the working of the Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit always kills sin. Always. He's merciless with sin. He, he loves me. But my hatred of sin doesn't even compare with God's. He never partners with iniquity. If you feel your life partnering with iniquity, you can be sure you're not following the leading of the Spirit. He's not witnessing the way He wants to in your heart. And when you feel Him, conversely, pulling you away from sins of the flesh and mind and heart, and you respond, oh, maybe you don't respond perfectly. Maybe not perfectly, but at least longingly. You, you, you find your heart tilting in the direction of pulling away from things that you know are displeasing to the Lord, then you can be sure. Paul says there, that's a work of the Spirit in you. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. Because that's one of the things you can be sure he will do. If, on the other hand, 
On the other hand, if you make absolutely no break, no effort, you, you, you don't feel anything tilting your heart away from the old life, then even if you like the idea of going to heaven, you have no right to assume that you're genuinely saved. He comes and he leads us away from sin. He leads us away from sin. That's, I said there were two ways he witnesses in our hearts. That's the first. The Holy Spirit always works against my sinful nature and helps me overcome it. Gradually, one day it'll be perfect. You cannot believe what a wonderful person I'm going to be when Jesus comes again. Even if you don't like me now, you will then. He works to tilt us away from sin. There's something else that he does, the second way. It's in verse 15. That the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out to God as our Father. 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is so important. The Holy Spirit makes my knowledge of God through His Word in church services, worship times, Christian ed classes, small group studies, my devotions alone as I sit and study and pray. The Holy Spirit works hard to make my relationship with God not just academic. It does require knowledge. Not just academic, but relational. It's relational. You can believe in God and not be a Christian. It's, it's the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit who comes into our hearts and causes Father. I hope you had a good relationship with your father on earth. I had a good relationship with my dad. I worked with him for, I don't know, 20 years. There's something about a relationship with a father. We ought to be eternally grateful that when the disciples came to Jesus, since Jesus, his followers, okay, and how, how should we pray? We should be eternally grateful that Jesus said, here, start like this, our Father. How, how do you view God? Do you view God as always just itching to get his hands around your throat, find you doing something fun and say, stop that? Do you view God as being sick of you when you fail repeatedly in some area, no matter how hard you try? Do you view him having, I have up to here with you? We say that to people, don't we? I've had it up to here. God doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit works to create that, that family relationship. Father, there's an intimacy. You don't need the Holy Spirit to go to church. You don't need the Holy Spirit to crack open your Bible and start reading just the knowledge of English and grammar. You need the Holy Spirit to relate to God as Father. It's key to everything Paul has been teaching in this chapter. Because if you go back to 7, I know I'm pressing you a little bit here, but if you went back to Romans 7 and then the beginning of Romans 8, you know, he talks about the law in Romans 7 and how it, it just condemns and it makes him feel guilty. And then you get to the beginning of chapter 8, maybe verses 3 and 4. Paul starts to talk about the solution to this problem. And he says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, that's Jesus, 
in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin. That's my sin because Jesus didn't have any, right? He condemned sin in the flesh, but not in my flesh, in the flesh of Jesus on the cross. Why did he do that? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to, to the Spirit. So, so he takes away just... My heart isn't just inclined to a list of rules. My, my heart wants to please God, but it does it out of a, a relationship of love. I want to please my wife, but it's not a chore. I love her. That's what makes me happiest. That's the change that the Holy Spirit works in my heart. Do I fulfill the law? I do fulfill the law. But I don't do it by trying to keep a law. I do it by allowing the Holy Spirit to lead my life, Abba Father, in a loving relationship with my Heavenly Father. The motive changes. I start to not just pursue righteousness, I've said it a thousand times, but prefer righteousness. That's the change the Holy Spirit makes. Boy, the whole New Testament, the whole New Testament talks about this change that the Holy Spirit brings in our relationship. I was looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Is that in your notes? Yeah? Okay. Where, where Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Of course, you could teach a budgie to say Jesus is Lord, but, but from the heart. From the heart. What the whole, he's saying what the Holy Spirit does is it causes me to long for the Lordship of Jesus in a way that I never could long for it on my own. My fallen heart can't do that. It resents that kind of spiritual authority. The Holy Spirit, he starts to change that. Or 8.15, the one we read, you, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So those are the two ways. The Holy Spirit witnesses in my heart and in yours. Always killing sin. Always leading us away from sin. But not just as a rule-keeping function. Abba, Father. A heart of love for the Lord. I get people asking me that. A common question. What's the relationship, Pastor Don, to the Ten Commandments and the law and all those rules? Are you saying the Christian doesn't have to keep the Ten Commandments? And I'm saying what's wrong with that is just the question. The way it's worded. Do I have to? What Jesus does is, I, I want to fulfill the law in my life. But not because it's a law, but because I love my Lord. That's the difference. That's the difference. Point number two. Christian life is filled with both glory and suffering. And both fulfill a vital part in the plan of God. I get that in 16 and 17. We're about two-thirds done. The Spirit himself, 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God, fellow heirs with Christ. And then this strange ending, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Those are truly amazing words. It's kind of like Chinese food. There's, There's this mixture of sweet and sour in there. And you need both. The remaining verses of our text, 18 to 25, they, they will mix and tumble this suffering and hope, suffering and joy, 
and they just mix them all up over and over again. That makes them hard to study in sequence. But here are some of the key thoughts of verses 18 through 25 on this idea of the Christian life is a mixture of suffering and hope, both, and why they're both necessary. First, or A in the notes, any theology that denies the value of hope and suffering together or treats suffering as something to be removed or overcome in this age is rebelling against the plan of God Almighty. I think of word faith. It's fizzing out. But boy, it had a massive, it had a massive swath of victims as it swept through the body of Christ. That if you just believe hard enough and confess the right things, you don't even have to die, physical death. You're just going to be healthy and prosperous. Kenneth Copeland's a billionaire. That's with a B. Selling that message on the airwaves. And people buy it. It isn't so. 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided, in other words, it's necessary, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't want to take a whack of time just to point the obvious, but in Paul's mind, present suffering is as much a sign of being an heir with Christ as future glory. Did you notice it? Present suffering, just as much a part as future glory. And it wasn't just Paul who talked like this. This isn't some isolated, you know, prop-up text I'm pulling out. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Paul said the same thing, 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that's a particular form of suffering. So the important point from today's text is this suffering is, is much more than just Merely persecution for faith. That's one manifestation of it. Paul's argument in Romans 8 is it, it encases the whole of creation with this groaning. It's the suffering of the fall. It includes all pain, all sickness, death, suffering, persecution. All that we experience in these fallen bodies. And he says this is, this is the way it will be until Jesus comes. Here's another thought from these verses. B. While both suffering and hope of glory are essential in our present walk in the Spirit, it's the hope that keeps the suffering from overwhelming us. I, I think the heart of the passage in some ways is that 18th verse. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's important when you read the Bible, it's important when you read the Bible not to think that it's saying something it isn't saying. So you could read this text and you could say, Paul is saying, 
sure there's suffering here. But God's not done yet. And there's glory coming. There, Pastor Don. That's what Paul is saying in this text. And you'd be kind of right, but you'd also be completely wrong. That's not untrue, what I just said. There's present suffering, but there's future glory coming. That's not untrue. It's absolutely true. It's just useless. What Paul says is the important thing is not just that there's future glory coming. He says you, you, you won't benefit from what's coming unless you consider that every day. In other words, he's not just talking about something that ex- exists objectively. Present suffering, future glory. He's not just saying that's the way it is. He's saying if you want this to work in your life, you have to, you have to in the middle of your present trial, Put future glory up against it. You have to actively use your mind, use your mind, and and think about future glory, or your present circumstances are just going to overwhelm you. And it's very easy. It's very easy to judge God by isolated present events and form conclusions about him that aren't true because we don't consider the glory that is yet to be revealed. God will always look unfair if all you look at is present circumstances and not consider future glory. I consider. That's a verb. Paul says, this is what I, here's the facts, and here's what I do with those facts. He says, I think about this stuff all the time. Does that surprise you? How many times was he shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, whipped with rods, imprisoned, left for dead? You better think about future glory. Paul says in another place, that's how, I, that's how I don't lose heart. I got all sorts of lousy stuff happening to me. But I, I consider, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. That's a, that's a totally different approach to life than God is there just to make sure I'm constantly having a thumping good time and I'm always happy with no trials. Because the problem with that is it isn't in here anywhere. The Hebrew word for glory, you probably know this, is kabod. You know what it means? It means weight. Not W-A-I-T, W-E-I-G-H-E, weight, heaviness. So, so the future hope of glory, Paul's going to describe it in a minute. He says, I, I, I put that on the scales. Here's my present suffering. Think of a balance. And here's what I'm going through. And I take future glory and I put it on there and it goes boom, like this. So clearly, Paul means you and I are to think, we are to think of God's promised future for us. It is debilitating not to ponder the glory that Christ will bring when he comes again. Sing about when Jesus comes again. Think about when Jesus comes again. Picture the new creation, what it's going to be like. Imagine bodies that don't grow old and never have aches or pains. Imagine seeing loved ones who died long ago in Jesus and how it will be good to see them again more than anything, to actually stare in the face 
the man who died on the cross for your sins and talk to him face to face. Paul says, don't go to bed at night without playing that before your mind and you'll sleep much better. Thank you, Jesus. Glory that's coming. Right now, well, there's cancer. Right now, loved ones die. Right now, people lose their jobs. Right now, there's war. But glory is coming. Give time to this. Paul's word, consider it. Make present realities shadowy. They're still there. Make them shadowy when they're put up against this. Here's a third thought from from, uh, these last verses. The suffering caused by mankind's sin in the fall is the product not of Satan, but of God. And in his love and wisdom, he has a redemptive purpose for it. It's talked about in 19 to 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That sons of God, that's clearly in the future. It's, it's us, fully redeemed, resurrection bodies. 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We can't imagine it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, right when he writes this, and right when you read it, and right when we talk about it now. And not only the creation, it's not just the created world around us, but but we ourselves, Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, it's still going on. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says creation didn't put itself in this spot, and we know it wasn't the devil. The Creator did, the Creator Himself. And here's the deal. Why? It's that question, isn't it? The why question. And the answer is, it's God's mercy that he refuses to make it as easy as it might be to order our lives here around idolatrous affections, satisfactions, God refuses to allow me to find ultimate satisfaction in a fallen world. He makes it obvious to me that sin breaks and ruins things. That's his plan. I have enough trouble, even in this fallen world, I have enough trouble not falling in love with this world. Can you imagine if it was absolutely perfect in every way, shape, or form? Who would turn to Christ? So it is, it is God's way. Why? Why? This isn't in your notes. You have to talk about stuff like this. Because one day it's going to happen. Why, why would a church like this gather? We did a few years ago. Why would a church like this gather at a funeral and bury a four-year-old? And wouldn't everybody sit in the pew and go, why? Why does stuff like this happen? And here's the reason. 
God refuses to allow any of us to think of this world as anything other than horribly marred by sin. He takes, he takes 50,000 people out of this world every day. Some are 90 years old. Some are 20 years old. Some are three years old. Some die of disease. Some are kidnapped. Some are killed in wars. Some are killed by a bus. And we're all supposed to look at this, all of us, and we're supposed to say, you know, there, there's no security here. Don't think everybody gets their three score and ten or four score years because they don't. You don't know when you're going. Life is short. Everybody needs their hearts anchored in eternity, and God refuses to let us miss that. And it's not his meanness. It's his eternal reach after our hearts to draw us to himself, to make us long for a better day, a new creation, all that his redemption brings. D. God's plan to make redemptive use of all suffering extends especially to those who are his children, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now we're almost done. 23 to 25. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Christians, born again. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. It's as though though Paul knows that we might just be thinking, well, God may have a purpose in suffering for this fallen creation and those who have not been adopted into his family through Christ. But surely it can't be his will for those who have received the Spirit to suffer. And then he specifically mentions all Christians. And he includes himself. We too. The Apostle Paul. Paul's already hinted to the reason. He says in 5.3 of Romans, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. God uses suffering to cause us to long for himself. God uses suffering to help dull my appetite for false pleasures and false security. Here's where Paul says it the most clearly. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul talks about his own life and ministry. I already talked about some of his trials. And, And here's what he says. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia... We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. I thought I was going to die, he said. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Why? Well, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says there, that's what you start to think about. That's what you start to think about. God refuses to allow us to mistake this for heaven. Remember, we don't sing the chorus anymore. I liked it. I liked it because I liked the realism of it. I think it was Matt Redman that wrote it. I'm not sure on that. Tom would know. Um, Do you remember we sing, He gives and takes away my heart. (laughs) You know, He gives and takes away. 
And he does. He does both. And it isn't that one is loving and one isn't. He gives so we see his present goodness and trust him for the future. He takes away so that we don't think we have security here and now. Hearts anchored in eternity. Hearts anchored in eternity. And everyone said? <laughs>